Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 4th, 2022. We're going to do a show on the history of art. We haven't done one for a while. Most of the shows on the history of art Contemporary shows, contemporary writers have focused on the contribution of women. Uh, for example, Charlotte Mullins was on the show recently talking about uh, her new book, A Little History of Art, which is a, a play on Gombrich's famous book on art, focusing on the contribution of female artists. Uh, we've done a series of shows on ethnic artists. Glenda Gilmore, historian, had a wonderful uh, book or has a wonderful book out about the African-American artist Ramar Bearden in the homeland of his imagination. We did an interesting show recently with Charles Dalheim, an art historian, on how Jews made the art world modern, focusing on the role of uh, European Jews in the creation of the modern art business of the commercial marketplace. Very interesting, but I think they all reflect our occupation, perhaps our preoccupation with cultural identity, with religious identity, with gendered or sexual or racial identity. We're going to deal with another book today, a very famous book on the history of art, but from 1970, it's been reissued. And rather than focusing on art in cultural terms, in gendered terms, in racial terms. It focuses on something quite different. It's a book. Some of you will be familiar. I have to admit, I didn't know about it before this show. It's a beautiful reissue. The Sounding Cosmos, a study in the spiritualism of Kandinsky and the genesis of abstract painting. It's from 1970, 50 years ago. And it comes with um, a new introduction by my uh, or forward by my guest today, Daniel Birnbaum, who is a Swedish art curator and art critic, now based in London, long history of understanding spiritualism in art. Daniel, uh, welcome. Um, talk to me a little bit about this this book, um, The Sounding Cosmos, a study in the spiritualism of Kandinsky, the genesis of abstract painting. Uh, by Sixten uh, Ringbarmer, uh, a Swedish art historian. Why does it? Why is it such a significant book, and, and why is it being reissued, and why did you write the foreword for it? Thank you so much for having me. Yes, Sixten Ringbom is a um, an art historian who passed away a little bit uh, too early. He was not even sixty years old. He was. Um, actually Finnish, but you know, certain parts of Finland also speak is, uh, Swedish. And so uh, what you said is almost right. Um, you know, Sixten Ringbom was a first class um, international art historian who was active here in London. He was um, associated with the Warburg Institute. That's um, um, an important uh, um, research center for for uh, visual culture. Yeah, just around the corner. I know you're talking to me from um, Marlborough High Street in London, just around the corner from you. Exactly. When I work, uh, when I go to work, I actually pass by there. And it's, um, you know, it's not part of uh, London University, I guess, but it's um, it's 
closely linked to one of the books you just mentioned about how you know interesting Jewish scholars um, created uh, you know parts of modern art and and you know actually uh, the Warburg family is an incredibly interesting Jewish family. Abi Warburg, super interesting person who kind of revolutionized um, art history in a way and had very famous scholars, in, in, including um, uh, students, including Gombrich, who you also mentioned. So Sixten Ringbom was actually linked to those guys. He was very young when he was in London, and he came across documents that, in his mind, changed the understanding of what early abstract art was meant to be and, and how it came about. Right. So let's just remind ourselves of what abstract art is or was. Uh, Wassily Kandinsky, um, late 19th, early 20th century Russian painter, art theorist, is considered one of the founders. Many people will be familiar with his remarkable works. They seem very familiar now. At the time, they were deeply revolutionary. What is it that... Um, what is it, uh, Daniel, that um, that Ringbaum said about or wrote about or thought about Kandinsky's art, that it was so revolutionary, so controversial? Um, he, uh, he notes that um, in 1965, he had dynamite in his luggage. Um, <laughs> he wrote from uh, the Warburg Institute about his, his thesis on Kandinsky. Why was it so revolutionary? Or why is it so revolutionary? Yeah, that was a good quote. I've actually never seen that. But um, he came across documents that actually prove that um, that Kandinsky was more influenced by certain esoteric or even occult thinkers than maybe one had uh, thought. Or, you know, there was already a huge reception of Kandinsky as the, maybe the most important abstract painter of early modernism. There are others. I would say if you study art history in a, in a Western university, or at least in Europe, like I did, you will be taught that, you know, abstract art was invented more or less by Kandinsky from Russia, Malevich from Russia, Mondrian from uh, Holland, um, and a few others, maybe some, um, you know, maybe some French people too. Um, Picabia, and it, it's almost like a little race there. The French are always involved somewhere or other in the history of art, aren't they, uh, yeah, Daniel? Yeah. And Picabia even kind of tried to predate some of his paintings to prove that he was first. So it was almost like a competition who did the first abstract painting. Um, and, and that's one part of this, you know, maybe this conversation, actually, because I will introduce another artist uh, who is kind of the reason why I got interested in all of this. I'm not an occult scholar myself. I'm not that interested in, you know, theosophy, anthroposophy, spiritualism, all these things that were very fashionable in the late uh, 19th century. But I have become interested in it because, um, and, and Ringboom is part of this, because it proves that, you know, the history of early abstract art was closer, cl more intimately linked with some of these um, schools of occult thought than maybe one would have thought. And um, Ringboom's book was you know, popular in certain circles, but actually almost scandalized in others. He was blocked from certain archives after, after having published this book, and it became very controversial, the whole and thing. And that's it. That's quite impressive in the history of art to be blocked, to be banned. Yeah. We ban people now for other reasons, but not because what they were saying was so troubling. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of the treatment of abstract art, both on the left and the right, um, Adorno, of course, was deeply against occultism from the left. 
here we have an image of Adorno looking like a minor East German communist <laughs> dignitary, which he probably was in his, in his other like life. Him. And then, of course, from the right, from the fascist right, we had Oswald, Oswald Spengler's decline of the West. Here we have an image of Spengler looking like a good Nazi. Um, both the radical right and the radical left were opposed to this abstract art, weren't they, um, Daniel? Um, yes, and Ringbaum himself is not a great fan of theosophy or anything. He's actually, you know, treating this uh, in a very, he, he's looking into this with, with a very kind of rational um, approach. And, uh, and he, he's not a, you know, a kind of irrational thinker or anything. But he found all these documents and he started to understand uh, or he started to explore what it was that um, Mondrian and even more so uh, Kandinsky actually read. You know, there were there was a movement called Theosophy, and it's a strange movement that is not easy to summarize. I try to you know look into this now, and uh, and, it, and it's yeah, it was founded it, by a, a Russian immigrant, Helena Petrovna uh, Blavatsky, uh, uh, a Russian immigrant to the United States, Theosophy. Yes, who was a bit of a humbug in? I mean, and now I, you know, I anticipate things here. But, but you know, she really created a kind of mix of many, many, many things. And I shouldn't say that she was a, a you know, well, humbug is a strong word, but, but um, she created almost. There a are stronger room. words um, than humbug, Daniel. You're allowed okay, to well, use strong words on this show if you feel like it. Very good. No, but I mean, she was an influential woman, and uh, theosophy was a mix of many things. And I guess. In the you know in earlier um, centuries in Europe, one wasn't aware or, or not so aware of the fact that there were many religions. So theosophy came about as a reaction to the fact that we became or like you know Europeans became more aware of the fact that there is such a thing as Buddhism or Hinduism and Islam and you know world religions and other traditions. And there were also new uh, discoveries in science, uh, confusing things like x-rays and radio waves and and it's a kind of synthetic eclectic strange doctrine and and uh, you know one of the interesting things with theosophy maybe is that it gave such a strong um yeah it, it created a platform for for women if we think about the fact that uh, you know most of politics and 99 percent of art history and all of academia and all of uh, you know the world of law it's all totally dominated by men yeah, but, this was something that Charlotte Mullins reminded us of in her little history of art. Yeah, so I don't think one can overemphasize the role of these theosophical, and it was a huge movement. It was not like some small esoteric thing only in, let's say, London or New York. It, it, it spread all over the world and, um, and became a, quite a force. And there's hardly a an interesting poet or writer from around 1900 who was not in, a little bit in, you know, interested in these things. So and another character who pops up in all this, uh, and you write about him, I think, in your foreword, is Rudolf Steiner and his understanding of anthroposophy. Um, Steiner, of course, is the founder of the Waldorf Education Movement, a pre-war Viennese social, uh, social political thinker who's very much in vogue now. So you yeah. tie all these things together or you believe they're all tied together? I mean, they are. So I don't have to tie much. I just have to kind of try to understand how they were they were linked. Rudolf Steiner was someone who, who knew everything. He wrote about everything. There's actually a little Rudolf Steiner house, um, you know, up the street here, close to, to um, 
Regent's Park. And, yeah, and there's I a school. There. I think that's where the first Waldorf school in the UK were. Yeah, and there's a library or a bookstore even. And it's astonishing that he wrote about everything. Uh, you know, and, and uh, or rather, he lectured, and someone transcribed it. But Steiner's uh, background is that he was a you know a top academic, at, you know, very intelligent man, no doubt. He worked uh, on Goethe. He worked on uh, wor he worked on Nietzsche. He worked on German philosophy from Kant to Fichte and all of that. But then he had some sort of spiritual awakening, and he became a member of that Theosophical movement. And actually was quite a you know charismatic character obviously he, he became a some sort of superstar in europe around 1900 and he lectured everywhere actually uh, you know I, I sometimes curate for the serpentine gallery in london and uh, we did Albrecht. A show. yeah i know the guy who works there Albrecht, hans Albrecht. Yeah, Albrecht, one of my best friends here in the art world uh, and uh, i always see him at the dld conference and i saw him yeah. actually last month in munich yeah, so a few years ago, he invited me to curate a show on Hilma of Clint, who is kind of the reason why I ended up in 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 this. Yeah, <laughs> so so you've uh, so Hilma of Clint is, and according to the Guardian, she might be Europe's first abstract artist, a Swedish artist, and you note that that's one of the reasons why uh, you're interested in this space. Many of us are familiar with uh, Hilma at Clint's uh, work. Was there a connection between Hilmer at Clint and Kandinsky? Or were they working at the same time on the same things in parallel? Very much so. Uh, and they probably did not know each other, but they were, for instance, in a show together in Sweden. But uh, and, and, and Kandinsky had a girlfriend in Stockholm, like many other people. And, you know, so, so we all did... have girlfriends in Stockholm, yeah. don't we, uh, Daniel? <laughs> of course, I even have a wife. But, uh, you know, there are um, um, yeah, they're clear similarities, and they were inspired by the same people. Kandinsky read Steiner, and Steiner was the, the chairman of the German Theosophical uh, movement. And then there was some sort of uh, struggle in there, and, and, uh, and it seems that, you know, the Theosophy is a very ecumenical is that the word in english you know when you think that all religions are lead to god when you think that you know yeah. they're linked steiner was more of a christian theosophist if that's you know i don't know if, exactly how to explain this now but it, I, I do feel that it's called anthrosophy i mean that was the there was some sort of a minor revolution inside the theosophical uh, german sec uh, sector and he became you know, he, he was uh, dismissed or kind of thrown out, but then instead he started Anthroposophy. And both um, Kandinsky and Hilma of Clint were totally involved in this. And, uh, and, you know, a few years ago, I was the director of the National Gallery in Sweden. And um, um, I knew a little bit about Hilma of Clint already in the, let's say, the 80s or 90s. And people knew about it locally. And it's funny that, you know, the, the very, very first time Hilma of Clint's abstract paintings were shown, she kept them secret. Um, she didn't think that the world was ready for them somehow. And then she died in the 1940s and, and no one knew about them. But um, a very important curator from Los Angeles called Maurice Tuckman 
at LACMA, he, he made a show in the mid 80s about the spirit, you know, spiritual developments in early art and a little bit, you know, um, inspired by people like Ringboom, who actually contributed to the catalog, where he tried to, you know, prove that not only Kandinsky, all of these people, including Mondrian and he, you know, it's the first time that 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 um, a major museum staged a show that included included Hilmar Klint's paintings. Um, they were all inspired by this. And, and it's still, it's I mean, 100 so, so Daniel, let's, so, so when people are wandering around museums in New York or Paris or London and they come to a Kandinsky, on the one hand, it seems very familiar, even at the time it was profoundly revolutionary. What does um, Ringbaum's thesis in The Sounding Cosmos, what does it teach us about making sense of this art, that it was actually in a way less revolutionary and more neo-traditional, more longing for God? How, how would you encourage people to rethink um, the work of somebody like Kandinsky when we, when we gaze at this stuff in museums and try to make sense of it, not just in the history of art, but in terms of what meaning it can give us in 2022? I mean, I think it, it looks very familiar to us now because it's actually, you know, a hundred years ago or more that that um, uh, the naturalistic paradigm was questioned. You know, all over the world, people were taught how to paint portraits or landscapes, and then suddenly a generation of artists um, understood that there are things out there that might be real, but they're not visible with our, you know, with our uh, with our with our eyes and they try to depict higher worlds or you know other dimensions and it's maybe not so uh, surprising because suddenly we realized that you know there were new scientific discoveries and there are things out there that are real but we can't see them and and back then i presume it was things like x-rays and radio waves and and the atom and all of that was very very um, yeah daniel it's um, a really wonderful history by a viennese historian called uh, Philip Blom wrote a book called The Vertigo Years about the first couple of decades on the, the second decade of the, the 20th century. I just actually wrote a piece suggesting that in the 2020s, we're living in similarly vertiginous years. Do you see a similar shift in contemporary art towards the kind of preoccupations that Kandinsky and these other abstract artists like uh, Hilmer at Clint had, are we, is history repeating itself in the history of art? I mean, there's no doubt that there's great interest in this stuff. Um, even I, who am not, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, occult in any way, find it very interesting. And I can see that, you know, two ways to approach your question. One is... Uh, that we understand that art history, as it at is as it has been written by strong American writers like Clement Greenberg or you know museum directors like Alfred Barr from MoMA, it's not the whole story. There are other worlds out there. There are other ways to look at images and other visual histories. And and if we look into you know what Ringboom and some of the other people do when they question the traditional uh, way to write in uh, art history, uh, we actually realize that there are other ways, there are other options to 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 understand how the world of visual, you know, uh, art uh, has emerged. It's not the formalist reading of, you know, a, a, a entirely or like 99% male history, totally Western, totally white. There are other ways to look at this. I also think that there are uh, new movements in 
in, in philosophy and theory that question a little bit the, the classical distinction between uh, you know the, the the knowing subject and the world out there some people you know try to look into it's more of an ecological approach perhaps looking mm. at at the world uh, and and things out there have agency too and and this now I'm, I start to sound a little bit like an occult scholar myself although I claimed I wasn't but you know there are um there are many artists today that are that are quite interested in 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 other kinds of ecologies and somehow i think that hilma of clint is in sync with this i i wonder a little bit because you know we staged a small show in stockholm it traveled a little bit in europe i did this a version for london with, with hans ulrich obrist in in serpentine and then it came to new york and became the best attended show in the history of the guggenheim museum there's something there that you know uh, and, and i'm not the person who can answer exactly why but this is only a few years right ago. so it triggers something and and and, and perhaps it's connected with the fact that for example, Rudolf Steiner's ideas of education, Waldorf education, and meaning, and anti-technology, it all resonates deeply in the 2020s, perhaps more than it did even in the 1920s. But what no, about re-fitting re this tradition back into the, the history of more traditional art? I know in the introduction you note that... Um, Kandinsky's work perhaps wasn't as foreign to the work of more formal impressionist art like Manet. How does how does this uh, abstract painting now look? Did it is it as revolutionary? Does it seem the narrative as revolutionary today as it did back then? Is Kandinsky perhaps not quite as revolutionary an artist as he was presented as? Um. I mean, it doesn't look revolutionary to us now because we're so used to it. If you see a... Um, no, but my, my sorry, my question, maybe I didn't cl clearly articulate it, uh, Daniel, was is there more of a sort of a natural progression, a narrative between, say, the work of impressionists like Manet and the work of uh, abstract artists like uh, Kadinsky? I mean, possibly if we, I mean, this, I'm not sure that that is what Ringbaum wants to say, but, you know, they are, they do depict things. He's trying to paint things that are out there. So it's, it's, it, it is in a way representational perhaps, but of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's higher other spheres. But he, he, I mean, Kandinsky himself thought that he was, you know, purifying art, that it was, you know, art that, um, that is, that is pure. Um, I think what has happened now is that uh, when people start understanding, um, you know, I, I, I think the Hilma of Clint story has been more of a revolution than, you know, the recent discoveries um, uh, when it comes to Kandinsky, that, you know, if we take someone like Hilma of Clint seriously, she wasn't taken seriously. She, was, she, she wasn't, well, people knew about it, but she was always dismissed as simply some sort of a diagram occult person, you know, someone painting uh, diagrams of higher spheres and a little bit of a, you know, not part of our history. But I think she liberates um, uh, um, liberates other artists. So now that we look at people like Kandinsky and uh, um, even Mondrian, who actually famously wrote a letter to, to Steiner, uh, but never got uh, any answer, you know, Mondrian would be um, envious of Hilma Klint because he, she at least had Steiner in her, you know, doing a studio visit. So I think it's, you know, I think it's a moment of a revision and that we look at these uh, early abstractionists a, a little bit through other eyes. And um, uh, Sixteen Ringboom was one of the, you know, er, 
some, one of the people who realized early on that there are other stories here. It's not only part of the formalist kind of uh, art history that has been taught to us primarily at, in U.S. Acad um, universities. Finally, um, Daniel, uh, what um, you, you mentioned a sort of a shift back to interest in th theosophy and integration of the world into everything. Which artists in particular would you suggest people look at who are inheritors of the Kandinsky, Hilmer, Clint tradition of rethinking the nature of art? Are there particular young artists around these days? Um, I mean, I think one of the possibilities, a possible answer to your question is that people are interested in a different notion of, um, of, of life. You know, that, that uh, Hilma Plain, for instance, I don't have the sense that her uh, version of abstraction is about mathematics and, 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 and only about platonic kind of stable shapes. It's actually vibrant life that she's trying to depict. And I would say that there are numerous artists today that are somehow questioning the anthropocentric worldview of life, you know, and trying to understand life forms that are not just our, you know, our visual representation of the world. I would say, you know, the best known of them all maybe right now is Olafur Eliasson, but there are many others, Pierre Wig, Thomas Saraceno, um, um, Annika Yee, uh, American uh, uh, artist right now. I think there are lots of people interested in, it's not ecology in the classical sense, but new forms of a questioning of anthropocentric... Uh, right, and, and just as we've done a number of shows on reminding us of our in, intimate relationship with other creatures, I assume yeah. that you have a similar movement within the art world of that. 100%. This is almost like a dominant thread that runs yeah. through... And music as well, of course. It's yeah. just not... Well, it's no. fascinating stuff, Daniel. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, I'm not sure if I should be congratulating you or the publisher. It's been reprinted, The Sounding Cosmos. It comes with a very short, sharp um, uh, 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 well, sort of an introduction to the introduction uh, by, uh, by Daniel. So congratulations on that. What Thank else should people be reading in addition to um, The Sounding Cosmos, Daniel? No, so uh, I mean, the reason why I ended up writing this little preface is that the publishing house is also publishing the uh, catalog resume of Hilma Clint. And normally, catalog resumes that are, you know, t a complete, you know, an attempt to look into all the works by an artist is something yeah. that only scientists. So we're going to have a book. Uh, we're going to have a book about uh, Hilma of Clint, which will be definitely yeah. very interesting no, there's a there, i mean that is maybe not for everyone to have seven volumes of you know uh, all the work <laughs> but they're but they're quite beautiful and and my um, uh, co-author uh, julia foss who used to be the um, the 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 chief uh, critic for the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, a, a German colleague of mine, and she has written the first uh, book on Hilma of Clint that comes out internationally, and it will be published by, um, I think it's Chicago University Press. Okay, we'll have weeks. to do a show with her. Perhaps you can introduce me. Absolutely. She's a very brilliant person, and she knows much more about Hilma of Clint than I do, uh, but we did this together.